Hello, and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. This is episode 39, The Diseased and Vile Creature, Thomas Cutbush, with special guest, author and researcher, A.P. Wolf. I'm Jonathan Mangus, and joining the show today from the Isle of Jersey in the English Channel is author of Jack the Myth, A.P. Wolf. Also coming to us today from Maidstone, Kent, in the UK is Paul Begg. From Charlottesville, Virginia is Ali Ryder, and the proprietor of JTRForums.com. From Philadelphia, Pennsylvania is Howard Brown. Thanks everybody for being on the show today. Thomas Cutbush was arrested and charged with the malicious wounding of Florence Johnson and Isabel Anderson on March 9, 1891. He was found unfit to plead and confined to the Broadmoor Lunatic Asylum, where he died in 1903. He would have been roughly 22 years old in the autumn of 1888. In February of 1894, the Sun newspaper ran a series of articles accusing Cutbush of being Jack the Ripper. These articles prompted Melvin McNaughton to compose the McNaughton Memoranda, an inter-office report that disputes the Sun's articles, in which he named three suspects more likely than Cutbush to have been the Ripper. Druitt, Kosminski, and Ostrock. Cutbush's suspect status has been given a second life recently by the widespread press reports concerning the opening of the Broadmoor Asylum Archives this past November, which included Thomas Cutbush's files being made available to the public. A.P. Wolf has been researching and writing about Thomas Cutbush and related murders for the better part of the last 20 years, and published his book on Cutbush, Jack the Myth, A New Look at the Ripper, back in 1993, a revised edition of which is available to read for free on the casebook.org website, and links to it will be provided in the podcast show notes. We welcome A.P. Wolf to the show. Um, A.P. Is that that where I say hi? Yeah, that's where you say hi. (laughs) And you can all sit down now. (laughs) (laughs) You sure? Yeah. Feel free. A.P., what led you to become interested in the Whitechapel murders? I don't like Colin Wilson. <laughs> oh, that's a surprise. Yeah. Um, but, but basically, my background's in animal behavior and biology, and I think that provides a sort of unique insight to this subject. And uh, I know some of you will remember my colony model, which is still available on Casebook, and even when I'm not. And this discusses the subtle social signaling mechanisms which may well empower and then reinforce misguided and downright dangerous misconceptions about the female of the species. And this is where Colin Wilson is or was king. And my aim was to bring him down, basically. And I found Thomas Cockbush by mistake when I was researching the book. And when did your interest in the Whitechapel murders start? I mean, you wrote you wrote the book Jack the Myth back in 1993, but I assume that you, you know, were were involved well, in I, researching I, yeah. before, long before yeah. that, right? Yeah, I spent about ten years working on that book um, before before I even thought about putting it into print, you know. And uh, but basically, I was upset with people like Colin Wilson who were spreading these myths and. Uh, complete and utter nonsense about killers like uh, Jack the Ripper. 
Um, then by chance, I just stumbled across uh, Thomas Cutbush in uh, Collindale's. Okay. <clears throat> now, it wasn't supposed to be a suspect book, to, a book at all, you know? But because you didn't like the myths that others were spreading, you've devoted your life to creating myths about people who haven't even been accused of murder? Well, I don't devote my life to it at all, Ali. <laughs> I'm a very busy man. But it's, it's the hobby. same thing. You, I mean, you you say that Colin Wilson's model of murder is, you know, you you actually join the case simply to bring him down, but you're yeah. accusing a man who hasn't even been accused of murder or convicted of murder, and you're creating a mythology and a model around him based on what you believe him to be and what you believe to guide him. How is that any different than what Colin Wilson... Well, do you, you're referring to Thomas Cutbush there. Yes. Yeah. Um, I've never said that Thomas Cutbush was Jack the Ripper. And I'm just um, exploring the avenues that are available. Um, you know, I'm, I'm my own worst critic in that way. That uh, I often think that maybe he wasn't. Um, <clears throat> but no, I, I just didn't like the, the social signals that were being sent out in the 60s, 70s and 80s by people like Colin Wilson and other writers, there's a lot of them around, who are sending out very misguided and, and as I said, downright dangerous messages to young um, impressionable men about the female of the species. I mean, a hey, lot Kate, of it is just... Ever... Yeah, carry Sorry. on now. Um, did you have any um, previous um, inclination towards one specific suspect before um, beginning your work on Cutbush? Absolutely not. Was there anybody... Uh, absolutely. Um, you're suspect free then. Oh, yeah, yeah. As I say, I, I, I just happened to be in Collindale's and uh, spending a few days there, and I came across Cutbush in the Sun. I'd never heard of him before. And I just thought, well, this chap needs looking at, you know? Were you um, disappointed he- about the way in which there was not a. Uh, a, a, a good response to, to the Cutbush, which incidentally I'll say that I've changed my opinions uh, over Cutbush a lot in the last few months, but were you disappointed yeah. that there wasn't so much of a big pickup, which in truth there should have been? Um, uh, do you refer to the recent release of information or to the myth? No, I, I meant to, to when the myth came out and, uh, and everything. Oh, oh no, 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 I wasn't disappointed. Right, because no. a lot of people hadn't researched Cutbush out properly at that stage, and so... Yeah. Well, uh, they still haven't, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> there, there, there is a small degree of truth attached to that, yes. <laughs> There's a lot more to be done. Everyone's in such a rush, you know? <laughs> Yeah, there, there's there's uh, a lot that's emerged that's very interesting with regard, not necessarily because of the files, because the files um, didn't really contain a great deal but that, that's new, but certainly being able to look at uh, Cutbush in, uh, in light of that makes yeah. him a far more enlightening suspect. And in fact, just to, to something that Ali just said earlier on, of course, uh, what is emerging is, is that... Um, they did in 1891 when they were looking for him. Uh, he he went around saying that he people did think he was Jack the Ripper at that stage. I mean, he hadn't been yeah. suspected in 1888 particularly, as far as I'm aware. He may have been. Yeah. Uh, but certainly from 1891, he was saying that that's what he thought people were suspecting him of being. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. 
Now you, uh, AP. Oh, go ahead, Howard. I was going to ask. Wait, let me, uh, let me ask this real quick. Um, sure. You had, you had made the comment to Allie that you've never uh, accused Cutbush of being Jack the Ripper, but um, you, uh, one instance in which I think that you've pretty much flat out uh, said that he was Jack the Ripper is when is when uh, you were commenting on. Um, the Lloyd's article by L. Forbes Winslow who, that contains the description of of uh, Jack the Ripper being in a country lunatic asylum, um, a medical student from a good family, young man of slight build, blue eyes, studied hard, and his mind gave way and became a religious enthusiast and attended the early services at St. Paul's. You followed up on that uh, Lloyd's Weekly article by saying, well, Cutbush matches each of those points. Um, so maybe you can make it a little clearer. I mean, uh, you like to say that you've never named Cutbush as Jack the River, but then it seems that, uh, you know. That was probably more. T- that was probably more to do with temptation of good whiskey or something like that, JM, you know? <laughs> um, but it, it, it was a very nice little neat. I, I can't refuse neat and sweet, and right. it did seem to sort of uh, do that. But I've, I've never sort of up and said that Thomas Cutbush is Jack the Ripper, and I don't, I don't think I would. Me and Robert argue about these things all the time, you know, and um, we've got a hell of a lot more work to do before one could even begin to say anything like that, you know? Um, I was going to ask AP, what was the most significant thing about Cutbush that led you in his direction? Was it uh, possibly the, uh, the alleged syphilis or the, uh, uh, Cutbush's perception that he had syphilis, or was it perhaps the McNaughton Memorandum itself? No, no, none of those things at all. Simply one thing. His uncle was one of the most powerful police officers in London. That was it. Okay. When you, when you find a connection like that, you've got to exploit it, explore it, and connect it. Exploit it, why? What does his uncle, being the most powerful policeman in London, have anything to do with his candidacy? Is this just more anybody who's in a position of power and authority, AP, automatically has to bring them down or, or take them out? I fail to see what his uncle's no, no. position has to do with his candidacy. It's... Um, it's more to do with other cases that I've studied where um, I think the Essen case I found in Germany was, was, was the background for that, where a senior police officer's son was actually raping women at Essen University, and the officer was supplying him with the details of where the police were going to be that night, and he was raping the women where the police weren't going to be. And... Uh, that was that's in that's in the myth, and it's a it's a it's a very complicated case. But uh, when you find a suspect in a case and he's connected to a major or a senior police officer, then you've got to sit up. You've got to take notice of that straight away. Uh, um, uh, and, and AP is referring to Superintendent Charles Cutbush committed suicide. Um, there has been no established link between Thomas Cutbush and Charles Cutbush, has there? I mean, from what I understand, I mean, you're, you're referring to him as an uncle, but yeah. but from what I understand, um, that it hasn't been um, concretely established that these two individuals were even related. 
No, but if they were not related, the Sun wouldn't have written their articles and McNaughton would not have replied to those articles in some form or manner, you know? Right, McNaughton now... a relationship there. Right, McNaughton, the McNaughton the does refer to, um, to Charles Cutbush as Thomas's uncle. Um, mm. in, in the, and you're right, but, but um, that could have easily just been a mistake on McNaughton's part, right? One of the many... Well, I hardly think so. All he had to do was knock on the door next door to him and say, Charles, is this your bloody nephew or not? That's all he had to do. You know, there was only two answers, yes or no. And obviously the answer was yes. But I have to, um, I have to balance that with Robert's opinion that uh, they are not uncle and nephew. And Robert is very careful while I'm quite reckless, as you know. I was going to ask KP a sort of off-the-wall question here. Is it possible that Uncle Charles was Uncle Charles um, to some illegitimate or uh, out-of-wedlock liaison? Do you think that um, he may not technically have been his uncle on paper, but if you get my drift, and maybe that that's what led him to think that he was his uncle? Or, <laughs> I, yeah, I get your drift, and... Um it, it's my opinion that he probably was his uncle, um, or there is some very close relationship between the two. You know, he, even uh, at the end of his madness in Broadmoor, Thomas is still naming senior officers at Scotland Yard and planning to write to them and everything else. And to me, it's obvious that, that the two men are connected intimately. Based on... Um, Ali said, based on what, AP? Based on the fact that the son wrote the articles, which they wouldn't have done if he wasn't related to a senior police officer, because there would have been no reason to write them, because there wouldn't have been the sensationalism attached to it. So what, Uh, if Thomas Cutbush was... ...stabbing women, but that's not sensational enough for the son to write an article about it, there has to be an additional connection to a police officer... Beyond the fact that they never mentioned Cutbush, and so therefore by name, and uh, so who was making this connection? And wouldn't there be Um, more sensationalism to say Inspector Cutbush's nephew, an alleged police conspiracy, if indeed they were after the sensational aspect of it, to really bring that out if that was their aim? They go to great pains to point out that they don't want to harm the relatives of Thomas Cutbush in the actual articles. And they won't name names for that reason. Um, so you say that they wanted to draw on the sensationalism of his family connection, but they don't actually name the family connection. So how was anybody supposed to... Uh, what was the point of them writing these articles for the sensational aspect of the family connection if they're going to great pains to to help save the family from the embarrassment? Those are two completely contradictory points. Either they're trying to sensationalize based on the name, or they're trying to protect the family. But they can't have both at the same time existing. Yeah, it's, it's a very complicated situation with respect to race's involvement. Obviously, um, the information they received and everything else came from Inspector Race. And um, they were perhaps reluctant to name names or sources because of that very situation. But it was obvious that it was Inspector Race who was providing with the information. Why is um, it obvious? I would have thought it was more likely that it was coming from the aunt uh, and, and the mother. Because they are the only ones who would have 
Well, they're yeah. the only ones who would have had that letter from the guy who met Cutbush. Not necessarily. Uh, I think well, that not, letter necess- might- not necessarily, but that's, that's basically... Uh, there's no uh, real reason opinion, to suppose that Race would have had that letter. My, my feeling was that letter was probably sent to Scotland Yard. No, it was sent that to the mother and the opinion. aunt, because she, she, that's what she says. Yeah. Well, you caught me on the hop there. But certainly, <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> that's not, that is not the intention of the exercise. <laughs> certainly the, um, you know, the letters were sent to the son by somebody. And um, I, I just don't think the son would have, would have taken that story as far as they did unless there was a connection between um, Thomas and Charles Henry. I just don't think they would have done and I certainly don't think McNaughton would have responded to the articles unless there was a family connection between the two men. There's no reason to. Why? Now, kind of back to what Howard uh, uh, asked earlier, um, I mean, I, and, um, be- because um, McNaughton mentions this family connection between Thomas and Charles, that leads you to believe, AP, that McNaughton was trying to... Uh, cover up um, the fact that, that Thomas Cutbush was indeed Jack the Ripper. Um, is that correct? And, and, and if that, because that's where I, where I think you're going with this. And, and then also, um, back to Howard's question, who, why, why would it have been kept as a, just an inner office memo? I mean, who, who do you believe that uh, the, the McNaughton Memorandum was written for? What purpose would it have served if it was indeed uh, an attempt to cover up Thomas Cutbush's involvement. I think cover-up is perhaps too strong a uh, um, too strong an interpretation. I, I'd prefer to see it as simple misinformation that um, people were wriggling, and uh, you know, but basically, until we can establish a relationship between Thomas and Charles Henry, there's we we could argue about that all night. But my, my personal opinion is that the, the son wouldn't have bothered to write the articles and Morton McNaughton would not have replied to them unless there was a connection between the two men. And there certainly seems to have been. Um, okay, so let's talk a little bit about Thomas Kepbush. Um, he, as I said in my introduction, he was um, uh, arrested for committing jobbings. Which, I mean, he, he uh, stabbed two women in the buttocks. Um, jobbings. <laughs> yeah. And um, but Thomas can't be uh, Thomas's location in 1888 can't be pinpointed. Oh, I think it can. Where, where uh, do you believe he was in a private asylum, like I, I had said earlier? Where, no. Where, where uh, do you think he was? One of the biggest problems that, that Robert and myself have had is is a fear that Thomas was in a private asylum during November, during the, the whole of 1888. Um, and that's something we've searched for, never been able to really uh, sort out. But if you look at the, um, the Broadmoor files, Cutbush states that in November of 1888, a Dr. Brooks attempted to poison him with lead. And I feel this is the most direct evidence we have yet found, showing that Thomas was not confined in an asylum or workhouse in the autumn of 1888. But that, because that around, place in where? In Kensington or? In London. Okay. 
that that is helps. That, is there, has there been an established to a Dr. Brooks that the Cutbush family knew in London? How does that place him in London? Dr. Brooks. Dr. Brooks. Dr. Brooks was definitely treating Thomas Cutbush. And then if you compare the Broadmoor files to the Sun reports, and they actually have a letter from Dr. Brooks in those reports, he states quite firmly that he was treating Thomas as an outpatient. Now, now that means... He was not in hospital or an asylum or workhouse. There is also a letter, I think, from a shopkeeper, uh, I don't know, tobacconist or something like that, AP, isn't there, that's referred to in the sun. News news agent, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, who, and and Thomas used to walk in and uh, give him all this this stuff. Buy his coin coin and advertiser. (laughs) Yeah. That's right. It's interesting because one of the the biggest problems with Thomas Cutbush's candidacies to most people who view this logically is how does someone who's a paranoid, a supposed, I will, alleged, a possible paranoid schizophrenic go from wholesale mutilation of a woman, many women, violent, crazy, get away with it, and then three years later he's arrested for... Um, knifing women in the buttocks in the park two in broad and daylight. Yeah, yes. I, I round it up to three, whatever. Um, so, um, how does he go from wholesale mutilation to stabbing women in the butt in broad daylight in the park, no concealment at all? And how do you de escalate in violence and paranoia? Schizophrenia? And one of the um, quaint theories is that, again, that he was been. Um, You're fading, Ali. That's okay. Can you still hear her, AP? Uh, Not quite. Are you there? I'm here. I can hear everybody else. Okay, continue. I can, as long as we can all hear you uh, faintly, it's something I can fix later. One of the theories to explain why he went three years supposedly from wholesale mutilation to stabbing... Two and a half years, Ali. Whatever. An approximate three years from wholesale mutilation to stabbing women in the butt is that he was confined to a asylum. If we have records from his previous doctors, if we have past medical history in his Broadmoor files, why wouldn't a previous incarceration in another asylum also be included in his Broadmoor files if that's the um, explanation why he committed no acts of violence in those approximately three years? From Well, Ali, I've shown lots of cases where exactly that sort of thing happens. I showed it in the myth, and I've showed it on the message boards recently. But um, I think it's fair to suggest that both Robert and myself share the vague notion that Thomas was in fact innocent of these jobbing charges. It's only a vague notion at the moment, it's something we're exploring. Um, George Kirk, the solicitor for the case, appeared to share that notion. Um, but if you look at what he said, he said, I was advised by eminent counsel that his acquittal was almost a matter of certainty, and there is good reason to believe he did not commit the crimes imputed to him. Now, this statement came after Thomas had been HMP, so the solicitor was no longer attempting to defend his client. He was attempting to set the course of justice right. And I do see a similar element in Inspector Race's efforts to arrive at some kind of truth, as if he knew he had sent the right man to Broadmoor for life but for the wrong crime. 
Well, I'm not really convinced by that argument because defense attorneys always say their client's innocent even what? after they're convicted. I no, mean, no, no, no. When a man's been HMP... Hey, hey Pete, quickly. Uh, like, um, I don't know if you're dealing with a... Your mic is creating a lot of static when you talk, but uh, yeah. maybe like a... See if check your connection with your headset to your computer. Make sure it's it's tight in there. Um, yeah. Is that any better, Jam? Yes, much better. Okay, yeah. you were, you were saying. Sorry. Yeah, I, I I was saying that you know, Ali has to consider that when someone's been HMP, they're they're, they're taken out of the remit of the law. A solicitor can't do anything at all. You know, nothing. That's the end of his job that he's been paid to do. But this uh, George Kirk was still attempting through the press to um, defend Thomas Cutbush. Now, why would he do that? He, he felt that Cutbush was innocent. And this was after Cutbush had gone beyond the pale. And, you know, and I must say, I find it absolutely remarkable that a man like Thomas Cutbush, almost 12 years into a life sentence in Broadmoor, is still protesting his innocence, claiming that he was set up by the police. Why? He's there for life. Lots of people who are in for life go in and still protest their innocence and say that they were set up. It's not necessarily, uh, you know, an indication that they actually were innocent. I mean, as to whether he was guilty or innocent of these um, stabbings, you know, the, the jobbings that he was convicted of, it's not beyond the norm for people to say that they didn't do it even when they're in for life or even after the death. Can we just establish that he wasn't convicted of doing anything? Yes. Um, he, 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 was, he was brought... That's one of the problems that you've got with this case, and it particularly influences um, the other guy, whose Colicott. name is just... Yes. Who Collicott, because he gets lumbered with, uh, still gets lumbered with, with uh, guilt for, for a bunch of crimes that he probably didn't commit at all. But so Cutbush wasn't. Have done. He no, he shouldn't have done. done. But he, no. but he did, and and Cutbush is in the same same thing. He wasn't convicted of doing anything at all, and so the the, the solicitor therefore would have defended him as best he could, even even after no. he'd been committed. No. Because he wanted the family to. He'd been paid well, his money. You know? It's. I mean, Paul, what what do you honestly believe are the chances of two young men deciding exactly the same time to go onto the streets of London, in exactly the same area of London, and start stabbing women in the backside with a sharp instrument? Well, one or the other That's one of them <laughs> is going to be uh, is going to be guilty. But but as far as I'm aware, I think George Kirk. Uh, when he wrote to the Daily Chronicle, um, he, his argument basically was that uh, uh, the newspaper had claimed that Cutbush was guilty of the crimes, and uh, Kirk denied that he was, didn't he? He, he, he yeah. said he had something uh, like a large number of witnesses well, uh, he actually had establish his innocence. Well, he did, he indeed. He had alibis, yeah. And, but, you know, the, so the that's what George matter- Kirk was doing, in effect, was just yeah. saying, hang on. He's, he's, he's not. He hasn't been shown to be guilty of this, and in fact, had our, had we been allowed to give our side of the argument, which they weren't, uh, then he says, "Well, you know, it, it, I don't think my client would have been uh, um, 
held to be yeah. responsible for anything. He'd have yeah. been exonerated of these crimes, basically. Not proven innocent, but, but certainly wouldn't have been. The whole so situation. Yeah. The whole situation with these twins of terror, Cutbush and Collicott, is, 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 is profound, you know. It's, uh, if Collicott was innocent, and it was a case of mistaking her identity, then either judgment should have been respited, well, as in a lot of cases, other cases I, I've looked at, the prosecution should have withdrawn the case and a verdict of not guilty should have Except been Except that already, the so, verdict had already been passed, hadn't it, on him? He was, he was, he was decided to, they decided that he was guilty and then the Cutbush case came up and they deferred uh, sentencing. They respited so the it. Yeah, the judge was in a very difficult situation because he'd got a, a verdict of guilty against... Uh, Collicut, so he should basically have passed sentence. But he and still that, could have spited it. He didn't do that. He, he could have done that. That was an option yeah. for him. And oh, he I didn't know. do and that. No. Instead, instead it, it went ahead and he was found guilty. Yeah. Um, and there were, two op- there were three options for that judge. He could have spited, not guilty, or guilty. Hmm. And, and he took the guilty option, which is strange. It is. Now, was, um, was Cutbush suggested to, uh, to have been Jack the Ripper um, at his trial? I think uh, you had uh, mentioned somewhere previously, AP, that both the prosecution and the defense, before he, uh, before he was found unfit, I guess, was that, um, was that he was Jack the Ripper. And I think you suggest that... Um, um, you, you say that, that Cutbush believed he was set up by the police, but uh, you also suggest elsewhere that he may have been set up by his own family in order to uh, <laughs> yeah, wrestle, yeah. wrestle uh, property away from him. Yeah, yeah I, I struggle with that situation because um, when Thomas, uh, uh, sorry, when, when Robert found that Lloyd's article, um, I had to take a swerve there because it showed the family seemed to be quite concerned about Thomas, you know. But then, uh, when you look at the Broadmoor files, there's an incident between Thomas and his mother where he says, if he calls her at his house, he should fix her. She replied she should not give him the chance. Now, that shows a degree of animosity between them. And obviously, Mrs. Cutbush was quite right. Thomas was not the chance because he was locked up in Broadmoor for the rest of his life. And she had his properties. Well, obviously, that was an issue between them. Um, try, try, to fix, try to fix your mic again, AP. It's getting really static. Do you want me to go through that again? Or? Uh, I didn't hear anything. If you, if you can fix your mic and then repeat what you said, that'd be great. But. Okay. Uh, is that any better now? Um, I don't think so, no. Wait. Okay. Uh, well, now it might be. Go ahead. Any better now? Yes, that's better. Yeah, well, as, as I was saying, um, when Robert first um, found the Lloyds article and, and put it up on the, on the site, um, I was quite amazed at the concern that the family, the mother and aunt, seemed to be showing for Thomas. But then if you come forward to the Broadmoor files uh, and look at a, an excerpt there where Thomas says... If he caught her at his house, he should fix her. She replied she should not give him the chance. Now that shows a, a great deal of an, animosity between the two. And 
about the house or Thomas's inheritance. And obviously, Mrs. Cutler, she's quite right. Thomas would not get the chance to fix her because he's locked up in Bournemouth for the rest of his life. Okay, wait a minute. So, so, so Thomas says he's going to go to his mother's house and quote unquote fix her. And no, she replies. He and says, she replies, I'm not going to give you the chance, and that shows animosity yeah. on her part? No, that shows animosity between the two of them. Okay, he was crazy and threatening to do... In, a, in other I'm words... That as violence towards his mom, No, and he's, he he's goes... Con- he's concerned about the properties he's inherited from his father, and he doesn't want her to have them. That's how I would interpret Hey, AP, let me try to reconnect you, okay? Because, um, let's see if that, that, because it's really, uh, staticky. Uh, okay? Okay. I'm gonna, I'm gonna hang up and then re-add you to the call, okay? Okay. Alright. Just by reestablishing. Are you there? Yeah, I'm there. And okay, okay. Yes, that's better. Ho- hopefully, it'll... It will remain so. So, um, said uh, here in Jersey, it's a very dodgy connection, anyway. Right. That that sounds that sounds a lot better. Um, so, um, Howard, do you have another question? Yeah, I, I, yeah, can I, I did, buddy. I wanted to on, a, Yes, Paul. Sorry, could I just comment on what was just said? Actually, I, yes. I, I think we need to repeat that whole segment because he was bad and I couldn't understand him. So I'll just repeat my question, let him ask it, and Paul gets his chance to the comment. In. Okay, that sounds good. Okay, because the, the topic of discussion before we had the problem was um, AP believes that Thomas saying to his mother, I'm going to fix you, and his mother saying that she doesn't get the phone to give him the chance to anim- animosity and ill will on the mother's part. But to me, I'm reading this as crazy son from is, is threatening her, and she says, quite reasonably, in my opinion, you will not get the chance. And I don't see how this goes from... Uh, you know, a relative exchange to no, you're not going to fix me to animosity and an attempt to get his inheritance when he's locked up for being a crazy, for lack of a better term, since we don't know what his particular ailment was. Well, I would have thought a mother's response in that situation would say something like, now calm down, Thomas, you know, or, or whatever, but um, obviously he was dwelling on the fact that <laughs> He'd lost all his properties, and um, it just doesn't tie in with the Lloyd's report for me. There seems so to be animosity there between them. she doesn't respond how you believe a mother should respond when her son threatens her life. No, I, I, I was drawn to this. I was just drawn to the, to the it seemed to show a, a different situation in the Lloyd's reports. And that, you know... <coughs> I can't say. We're still looking at these documents, you know. They've only just come out. So all of the... You believe she had an initial goodwill because of all of the care that she shows and the whole committal and all of this, and the family is all around him, and based on one line in one conversation where her son threatens her with violence. Oh, not at all. I I, I long entertained the suspicion that the the, the, the Cutbush family... um, were compliant in Thomas's um, removal to Broadmoor to get hold of his properties. Well, I think uh, the son, uh, on, on the 17th of February, I, I think it was, uh, cited somebody called H.L., because they only ever did initials in the son, 
uh, to yeah. identify their witnesses. Uh, this HL said that Cutbush had seed, seized his mother or his aunt. I'm not quite sure which one it, it, it was. And had brandished a large knife, apparently with the intention of cutting her throat, but she struggled and managed to escape and thereafter became yeah. seriously afraid of him. And yeah. it's because of that incident that they gave information to the parochial authorities, uh, which resulted in, what was it, uh, five medical attendants uh, coming to pick up Cutbush and take him to the workhouse, which they did, and then, of course, he escaped. So what you've got is that this incident, before he had been committed, uh, took place, which which, which was uh, an assault on his mother or his aunt. With it was a knife. his aunt. Yeah. His and, aunt, and which... Apparently which... Att- and apparently attacked a serving girl as well. But I, I'm a little bit dubious now about this, um, this incident. What is, what is your source, incidentally, by saying for the, the servant girl? Because I, I seem to have missed that somewhere. Am I missing some sources here? Well, yeah, I have unlikely. it some- I have it somewhere, if I could get Robert to sit on my shoulder and tell me. But definitely right. a servant girl as well, yeah. Um, but I, I'm getting a bit wary of this story of Thomas knocking out five attendants and all that, because if you look at the um, Broadmoor files, it seems to be one attendant who who uh, wasn't looking in the right direction. Yeah, no, that, that was... Was that, was, that, was, was that another his, incident? No, that was that another incident. That was at the asylum, which gave him the chance to scale the wall and make, make his escape. But so he escaped twice, the, twice, did he, Paul? No, they, they, they just... The, some report was made it, to the it, parochial authorities by, by, the, by, by the mother or the aunt or both, and yeah. the parochial authorities sent five attendants around to take him to the workhouse. Cause so obviously they, they felt that they were dealing with somebody who was fairly dangerous. There was another incident later on where when he's on the run, he returns home and he take, and, and the aunt or the mother takes a knife out of his pocket but is too afraid to do so until he's asleep. Hides so, behind the sofa. The, okay, I'm, or, yeah. I'm really confused. So all of that happens. I need to clarify something because I'm I'm sitting here and I'm I'm just I'm utterly confused. AP, You're not I'm alone. Gonna, if you, is it your contention that he was never violent towards his mother or his family, and also that he also was innocent of the jobbings of which he was convicted? In which case, if you believe that he is innocent of any violence towards his both his family and it was all just a property scheme, and you also believe that he's innocent of the jobbings of which he was not convicted but um, uh, put away for then what basis are we looking at him for even considering him for Jack the Ripper? Well, I think he was extremely violent to women. Um, I think there's no doubt about it. What surprised me um, in the Broadmoor files is that he, he was extremely violent to men as well. Um, that did surprise me. Somehow it didn't surprise Robert. But, so you uh, believe I, he was, I was violent towards women, but he didn't stab the ones for which he was origi- uh, initially incarcerated. But you also, uh, who? So how was he violent towards women? I'm very confused. You believe he was violent towards women, but you don't believe he did the jobbings, and you don't. No, I haven't said I don't believe. I have a curious notion that he didn't do the jobbings. Um, I believe he was extremely violent to women. Based um, on what then? What do you base... You believe he was extremely violent towards women based on what? What, is, um, what? what evidence is there to indicate his violence towards women if not the stabbings for which he was incarcerated? I keep wanting you to say convicted, so if I do, just accept it means incarcerated. Yeah. Um, you know, as I say, it's a, it's a subject that we're 
all still studying. And um, uh, just from the reports of the attack on his mother, his servant, the servant girl, and and the way the guy speaks, his his mannerisms, everything else, you know, it's 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 just a suspicion at the moment. So that, you know. AP, uh, allow me to ask you about the syphilis that Cutbush was alleged to have contracted in 1888. Yeah. Are you yeah. of the opinion that he actually had syphilis, or did he imagined it? And was that somehow um, part and parcel of his uh, mental state in 1888? Well, well, Dr. Brooks says he examined syphilis, and he, he found no syphilis there, but he imagined he had syphilis. And uh, that's, that's quite uh, an important thing um, <clears throat> because he imagined himself into lots of situations I, I imagine <laughs> but no I don't believe he had syphilis at all I don't believe he had progressed as an adult to, enough to, to, to catch a, a, um, a syphilis or anything like that he was still in the, the child state you know would a child state be aware of syphilis enough to comprehend its meaning and attribute it to women? I said, if it's in a child state, I mean, having an understanding of syphilis means you have an understanding of sexual activity and its consequences. Well, I certainly was well aware, and I imagine Thomas Cutbush was well aware, you know, of these type of things. He, he was addicted. To... He, he was addicted to cures, Thomas. He had to have a cure for everything. Okay, but it, children, when they have cures for everything, if they're hypochondriac, you know, they've got the cold, they've got the flu, they've got the measles, they've got the mumps, they've got the, uh, the, the, the chicken pox. You know, they scratch, they get a bug bite. I've got the chicken pox. Yeah, yeah. But you're talking about a man who read The Lancet, Ali. Have you ever read The Lancet? I'd have read lots of stuff, but I, I, I'm specifically focusing on if he has a childlike state and he hasn't. Yeah, but he was a very clever boy, huh? To read The Lancet, you know, that's not bad. To engage <laughs> Lord Grim Grimthorpe in conversation, and he was a clever boy. But I'm not talking about his intellect. I'm talking about his emotional development, which are two completely separate things. You can be a very intelligent and precocious child who reads things well above your age level as far as intellectual capability. But we're talking about status, the maturity level. If you're implying that he had a childlike emotional state, right, which is what I believe you don't believe he had progressed emotionally to. Well, that from your statement? You're fading out me again, Ali. I'm not sure that there's any evidence there to suggest that he, he had a, a childlike mentality, though, AP. I mean, I, I don't... No, no, that's my opinion. Right. Based on just... just based, just based on general feeling. Looked at, based on uh, particularly one case that I've looked at, which um, the chap would actually be related to Thomas Cutbush. Um, going back 40 years earlier where he attacked a woman with an axe and mm. I still believe the guy was a relation but I, I you know um, there, there's something in these mannerisms and and his, his speech and everything else which do lead one to believe you know poor gentleman has fallen down the stairs it's the type of thing well, I yes, can imagine myself true. saying 
it's honestly it's the type of thing I could imagine myself saying because I'm I'm very childish and autistic as well. So you you suggest that he that he may have had some some kind of um, autism, <laughs> not so much well, that, that he was. I mean, why don't you elaborate on that a little bit, AP? Well, I I, I just see um, that type of spirit in Thomas, where he has great difficulty in in in, in, in recognizing faces, people. He misunderstands situations. He sees things as threat. Threats which you or me, well, I won't say me, but which you might see as a normal situation. Um, and, and that to me is exactly how I've always seen the Whitechapel murders that, that, that some poor woman's come up to a guy on the street and asked him for some kindness, and he's misinterpreted that, you know? And he's attacked her because he, he feels she's a threat to him. And Thomas Cutbush certainly felt that. In my opinion. <laughs> um, now, <clears throat> as has been mentioned before, you uh, in, in the case of Cutbush, we have uh, his attorneys making public statements um, ex- exclaiming uh, Cutbush's innocence. And, and um, um, how do you reconcile that with, with your idea that, that maybe um, they were at the same time trying to suggest that he was Jack the Ripper? Um, well, well, the, the su- suggestion that he he was Jack the Ripper is only we, we only have that from the Sun, right? Um, but um, you know, well, I we think there's suggestion- we, we, we we do in the sense. Just sorry to interrupt there. We we do have it. I don't want to 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 put Cutbush down here. Um, we have his admission where, when he met that guy in wherever it was, Bermondsey or. Yeah, yeah, that he was only laying Michael. down women. Awesome. Yeah. But yeah. He's, he, he, he there says that they all think I'm Jack the Ripper. So there yeah. seems to be some sort of theory going on very early on in, in, in that episode that he was yeah. being suspected. Um, yeah. He denied it, of course. I mean, he, but, but, but um, certainly it's not but just he, the he, sun in 18, 1890, whenever, that, that, uh, he, that comes he out. He did deny it. He did deny it, Paul, but in a very funny way by saying that uh, he hadn't done anything except lay women out, lay women well, out. Yeah, I which mean, which is a very uh, funny statement, you know. As his, denial, know yeah, but his denial isn't really important at this stage. It's just, just I wanted to establish that he admitted to being to, that people were suspecting him of being Jack the Ripper um, at that time, um, and uh, in 1891, not. It, it, it wasn't up until 1894 when the sun suddenly picks him out of nowhere and starts saying that he was Jack the Ripper. The sun obviously had reasons for saying that, and, uh, and, and those reasons would appear to go back to 1891. I think those sun articles are very well written, very well researched, <clears throat> and, and a lot of people uh, uh, put them down, but I, I think they're... Uh, uh, um, they're not sensational at all. They're trying very carefully to uh, establish who Jack the Ripper was, and I think they make a bloody good job of it. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think looking at them, particularly in light of the Lloyd Weeks, Week, Lloyd's Weekly News um, article, which yeah. put the two together, and there are very lot of uh, confirmationary 
material coming out in both pieces. And, and again, we're, we're talking about uh, publications that were three years apart. So Lodge Weekly News in, in 1891 is, is actually saying quite a bit of the stuff that, that the Sun expands upon much later in 1894. Indeed, and I think the, the Broadmoor archives uh, flesh that all out. Absolutely, yes, and they draw your attention more closely to all of that than, uh, yeah. than they would have done before. Well, I've got you there, Paul. Um, <laughs> what do you think about Charles Henry Cutbush? And um, he's always been portrayed as a person in charge of supplies, pensions, and stuff like that. Um, I can disappoint uh, you straight away and say, I don't know. I, I, <laughs> I'm not going down the Charles Henry. When, when, when it's firmly established that he's some part of... Uh, the Cutbush family, then, then it'd be interesting. But I no, I meant, I meant as a serving police officer because he's always been portrayed in the A to Z and everything else as as someone in charge of pensions and uh, uh, supplies and things like that. With uh, a desk-bound officer who has no no involvement with the Whitechapel murders at all. Yeah, how do you feel about that? I think that's basically what he was, wasn't it? Or, well, or do you think it was something if else? It's go- well, if uh, last year, uh, Debs found some parliamentary reports which um, showed Charles Henry Cutbush's involvement in Trafalgar Square riots. Yeah. He admitted in Parliament that he had the full power and authority without recourse to the Commissioner or Assistant Commissioner to march out an entire bat- battalion of constables, armor truncheons and staves to beat whichever heads Uncle Charles chose to beat. Now, that is not a desk-bound officer in charge of supplies and pensions. That is probably the most powerful serving police officer in the country. Well, he was executive superintendent at Scotland Yard, yes. And I mean, I'd, I'd, yeah. I imagine that had it been called upon him to do that, then he could have done that. But that doesn't necessarily mean that... He his... did do that. He did do that, Paul. Yeah, but he that does... questions in Parliament about it. But that doesn't he, mean you know, that he wasn't in charge just of supplies and pay. He would have been the most su- uh, senior superintendent Serving at that time. Officer. And if there was nobody else available to, to take action, then it would have, would have been him. But Even though did. it wasn't uh, necessarily... Yeah, well... As, but as I, but I think a lot of people don't recognise that the executive office at Scotland Yard was the most senior arm of much more police. And Charles Henry Cutbush was its leader, apart from the assistant commissioner and commissioner. And I think it's about time that myth uh, was, was, was taken away, that he was just in charge of pensions and supplies. He was, in fact, a very, very powerful police officer. See Debs for, for more details. Because yeah. she's actually got the parliamentary report showing that. Now, I'm still kind don't, of... Um, don't argue with Debs. I'm still kind of uh, confused on what, what you think the motivation of Melville McNaughton was in all this AP. Um, when he, in his memoranda, says that um, he thinks, uh, you know, he names Druitt, Kosminski, and Ostrog, and he, he uh, says that he's kind of uh, not not so much um, convinced about number two and three, but number one he thinks is, is the best of the bunch, being Druitt. Is this all just a McNaughton blowing smoke, in your opinion? or Yeah, total misinformation. I've always viewed the, the, the document as being disinformation. Disinformation is not something from our modern age. The Victorians use it as well, all the time. Um, if you look at the Trafalgar Square thing, everything else, it was common to use disinformation. Um, and 
as I said, but like I, but uh, like I said earlier, what what's the purpose of disinformation unless it's made public? I mean, what what purpose would an internal memoranda serve for disinformation? Um, when, to satisfy when, the when the, the, satisfy. Sun, the sun articles were made public. I mean, it seems like if he was going to respond in some way, they would have responded publicly. As well, how often does Scotland Yard respond publicly today? You know, it's uh, it, it's an internal memorandum uh, designed to get mandarins back on the lake. That's okay. basically what it is. You know, the mandarins of power. They wanted an answer and. And McNaughton supplied that, and, and it was a lot of fluff. Oh, you know? okay. as far as I'm concerned, it's not a serious document at all, is it? <laughs> Do you believe trying to give this misinformation to his own office? Repeat that, Ali. You were cutting out there. You believe that he was trying to give misinformation to his own officers? No, no, no. To to the mandarins above him. He didn't want the mandarins flying off. He wanted them sat on the lake. You know, it's. Uh, but okay, can we speak English? White Whitehall's a funny place. <laughs> Whitehall mandarins is a term that's given to uh, Home Office officials or or yeah, to government exactly. officials and civil servants. But I mean, in this case, it would be um, Asquith, correct? Well, he's probably a little bit above the the mandarin level, uh, but certainly. Said he is trying to give misinformation to his own officers. Correct. That's oh, what above, above his office. Okay. To say, me, when say, I say officer, I mean somebody above me. His own, his own boss. His own people. Yes. People. Yeah. Good lord! I don't know. I don't yes. really have to pick my words as carefully. <laughs> <laughs> to his own. <laughs> yes, to his own. Yeah, so he, he was trying to give disinformation to his own side. <laughs> For what purpose? <laughs> I mean, why would uh, what be the direct result of misleading his own side? What was going on within that internal division that would have required him to mislead his own loyalty? Loyalty to his own officers. You, you know, you've got to understand the, the British civil service and the British police force, you know. The loyalty is, is uh, paramount. Let me, let me ask him about the McNaughton Memorandum. And if it wasn't for H.H. Asquith, it's a 1,700-word document that is just sitting there. Yeah, but it, it, hey, hold on, hold on. Let me add him back in. <laughs> oh, you might like to... Cut to, to, this extremely powerful man, then... Why is McNaughton the one who's getting this disinformation? How can I better ask this question? Somebody help me out here. How can I better ask this question? Supposedly, he's saying that, that Cutbush is a very, very powerful man. And yet, McNaughton is trying... I don't know how to better answer, ask this Basically, you're trying to say is why would McNaughton be trying to protect Superintendent Thank Cutbush from you. people who are above both of them? This kind of protection level normally goes downward. You want to protect the superintendent from these underlings, but the senior people who would all know about it are um, uh, are not, you know, normally share this. Inf- they normally share that information. But uh, I think that's probably that's posed your question answered yeah. it. I'm sorry. No, but that yeah, that's fine. That that, that is basically my question: is of that if Cutbush is, you know. Uh, an upper echelon sort of dude himself, 
this kind of protection at that level is redundant and not necessarily... Uh, Ali. It had to be going to somewhere else because that kind of thing, it, it wouldn't have been... Anyway, I can't quite figure out how to phrase it, so we'll talk a bit. May I say something, if anyone can hear me? Yes, you're fine. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, no, no police force in the world wants uh, a mass murderer to be a relative of one of their most senior officers. I've studied that subject in depth. <laughs> they just don't want that situation to happen. And it's not going to happen. Trust me. AP. Yeah. Which appears to be the original document stuck in the HO files. It doesn't appear to have been sent to anybody. It doesn't appear to have been sent to, to, the, to, to the HO. So it was stuck in the MEPO files. It doesn't seem to have been sent to the Home Office. <coughs> There's no copy of the file uh, or, or of the memoranda in the, uh, the Home Office files. There's no mention of it anywhere else or indication that anybody ever received it. So we don't quite know who it was intended for. This is all basic guesswork as to as to why it was written. And as far as why... Exactly. It, and, and Cutbush actually isn't mentioned in the Sun articles. So who was querying it? Who was trying to... Who, who was raising issues that McNaughton would have been seeking to protect? And if nobody had Somebody asked was, any questions, yeah. then... Um, then McNaughton wouldn't necessarily have been answering it. Exactly. AP? And that's what, that's, a, that, that's what makes it such an interesting document, that it seems to be there isolated without any reason whatsoever, you know, apart from a response to the fact that Charles Henry Cutbush and Thomas Cutbush were probably related. That's how I've always viewed it. Sorry, Hal, you were going to say. Was that no, that's a, yeah, that was me. That's, that's okay. Uh, I was just going to ask you to think it's possible that that was written in response to the article and it was supposed to be jettisoned to the newspaper, but for one reason or the other that it was held back. Since it's well, never, have, never have been jettisoned to the newspaper, ever. No, no, I agree. No? Never, never. The, the British police do not respond in a manner like that to anything. Never. They would never... And certainly wouldn't have been naming individuals like, like uh, Druitt, Kuzminski and Ostrog um, no, a, as a way it, of it deflecting a, attention away from Cutbush. It would just been completely right. no-no then, just as much as it is if they did right, it today. Kuzminski was still alive. Yeah, true. That, that would well, have whether, whether they were dead or alive, I mean, they still wouldn't have done it in an official report. There was no evidence. Nobody was ever convicted. You can't do that. They wouldn't have right. done it. right. But then how does AP saying that the police will never have one of their own be related to a mass murderer, and this was supposed to address that? How does that address that? If, if it's out there in the public, it's either, then there, this letter, which is internal, does nothing to address that. So the, co- the, the route that AP is saying that this was written for to protect an officer of their, uh, uh, one of their own, if it's not, uh, th- there's no way of doing that in an internal memo. And if there's we'll the been accused line, by anybody anyway. Right, and yeah. we call it the blue line, the solid wall of police protection. I mean, I don't know what it's called over there, but over here it's called the blue line where the police close ranks around their own. And when the police close ranks around their own, you don't have to write a memo to say close ranks 
the blue line closes their own. So, oh. I, love, so I completely you, understand the concept of cop loyalty and the blue line. But you, you have to write memos in the British Civil Service, Ali. <laughs> Your life depends on it. <laughs> You've got to appease someone all the time. You know, this this is this, it's a letter of appeasement, and we're privileged to see it. We should never have seen it. That's basically it. And this letter of appeasement actually shoves it right up uh, Robert Anderson's backside by saying, oh, well, it wasn't Kuzminski, I think it was Druid. Yeah. F- fairly, uh, fairly interesting. Mandarins taking a dig at each other. It's, it's uh, so <laughs> common, you know. Um, Except one is reliant upon the other for promotion. <laughs> yeah. It's a politically, politically dumb thing to have done if, that's, uh, if he'd known about what he was doing. Well, I don't think any of them knew what they were doing, did they? <laughs> well, that's, that comes across fairly clearly, <laughs> I must say. <laughs> yeah, a little sonic for you. Hickory dickory dock, Lord Grimthorpe built a clock. When it chimed at ten, Tom heard it as Big Ben. But when it chimed at eleven, all souls went to heaven. Dispatched by a toy sword to meet the Lord who stole the clock of Hickory dickory dock. I just thought I'd line things up a bit. <laughs> <laughs> no. We worked on that for the last hour, haven't we? <laughs> explains a great deal. <laughs> Got another one for you, Paul. Oh dear. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so here's a little sonnet. Inspector Ace with a bee in his bonnet. This one's for Stuart, by the way. Rushed all over the place. Did Inspector Ace. But Thomas disappeared without trace. Poor Inspector Race. Not to be undone, Race flew to the sun. But then called to attention, Race lost his pension. But kept his wife and a rusty old knife. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we know who's up for Poet Laureate next. It's 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 no worse than the one we've got. No, I shouldn't say. Back to the the things, anyway. Back to the free. Now, um, I want to get AP's take on the 17th September letter. Um, you've said um, in the past that you think it's authentic um, contemporary letter, and and you've suggested that it, it could be uh, a, a letter that someone like a Cutbush would have written. Can you elaborate a little bit on, on your uh, opinions on the 17th of September letter for us? I'll try to. Um, it's um, <clears throat> I think there's big things happening with that letter right now, and... Um, uh, Max says that someone's getting egg on their face. I hope it's not me. <laughs> but uh, no, I, I believe it's a contemporary letter um, written at the time. I don't believe it's uh, um, from Jack the Ripper or the Whitechapel murderer, but I certainly believe it is a contemporary fake letter, if you like, uh, from that time, from 1888. And I certainly do believe that someone, someone like Thomas Cutbush would have written such a letter. Uh, he was a very fond letter writer. And, uh, yeah, so I'm quite pleased with the way things are going with that letter at the moment. So you just believe that if someone like Thomas Cutbush wrote the letter, you don't necessarily believe it was Thomas Cutbush? No, someone like Thomas Cutbush. Okay, and if I'm not mistaken, this letter, it would be the first actual use of Jack the Ripper? Yeah. Based on the date. So yeah. this was the originate. You believe that this letter was the origination of the term Jack the Ripper. Ooh. 
Um, no, because it because hadn't received the public. But by the it date, had, it would have to be, right? By the yeah, date, it would be the first known one. It hadn't been seen in the public domain or by anybody, you know, apart from perhaps uh, George Lusk or someone like that, you know. So you there believe that, that two separate individuals came up with the term Jack the Ripper completely independently of each other? Or no, do you not believe at all. that the person who sent this letter is also the same person who sent <sighs> the um, I've completely blanked the, 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 the Dear Boss letter. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> the Dear the, Boss the, the, letter. The letter writers were so pro- prodigious that, you know, it's, um, it's difficult to say, but I, I have a certain... Um, Anchoring for that 17th of September uh, letter. But do you believe it was written by the same person who wrote the Dear Boss letter? Because that uh, would have to be the case. I mean, it would have to have been written by the same people because they both signed Jack the Ripper in the 17th of September because in the time it was... Well, that's a, possi- that's a possibility, Ali. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't let myself be drawn any more than that on, on that letter. That's, that's, I think that's the question about question about the 17th September letter uh, would be whether or not Jack the Ripper was a term that was being used on the streets and was be, it was picked up by the letter writers, in which case they could be completely different letter writers. There is that uh, mention in the Swedish church records about Elizabeth Stride, that she had been killed by Jack the Ripper, which unless yeah. I believe that unless that's a later... Uh, interpolation into that that particular uh, notation, then that would that note would precede uh, the dear boss letter anyway. Yeah. So there is some slight evidence, and I use the word slight, meaning very, 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 very slight evidence to suggest that dear boss may have been uh, sorry that uh, that Jack the Ripper may have been a term uh, on the streets. In which case it's not impossible that two letter writers could have picked up the term uh, and, and used it. And so it doesn't necessarily mean that they would be one and the same. Yeah. I mean, in most of the cases where I know of the, the killer, serial killer, gets a name in the press and then the public adopts the name from the press. Yeah. And, and not the other way around. So... That scenario doesn't seem... Well, in the case of Leather Apron, it kind of went the opposite way. Well, I mean, that true, was true, thank you. I, I... That, but that was a description <laughs> given by the people who said, the man, you know, the man with the leather apron. It would be like if a killer became known as, you know, the man with the green mask. And they... Well, he wasn't known as the man with the leather apron. He was known as Leather Apron. Right, I know, but you, you can see how that sort of developed is what I'm saying. It's like if you're trying to describe somebody... And, you, and you're like, be careful of, quote-unquote, the man with the leather apron. And then people start, stop calling him the man with the leather apron. They will start calling him just leather apron. You understand? Well, I think well, the same, same, princi- same sort of principle argument can be used as beware of, the, beware of the ripper, because that's what he was doing. He was ripping people up. Then right, the it just gets, Jack gets stuck back. in front of it in a way that, uh, because Jack, like you get Jack, Jack-o'-lantern or Spring-heeled Jack or whatever, so it could still be a street name. What I found astonishing with the, with the leather, leather apron thing is that, um, you know, Leather Apron came out in that autumn, and by, by the December of 1888, there was a book published in America with that very title. That's, that's quite, quite quick work. Yeah, fast turnaround. Yeah, yeah. 
Howard, do you have any more questions? Uh, I was going to ask AP um, if he had found any positive developments in terms of Bush's candidacy since Broadmoor, but that's been covered. Uh, how about the negative? <laughs> well, as I think I said earlier, I, I would think it'll take me, me and Robert, uh, a good year to go through that um, Broadmoor file and follow every little thing up. Yeah, Can we so briefly establish who the Robert is? Because you keep referring to Robert all... Oh, sorry, it's Robert Charles Just Lindsay. for listeners. Right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. Who's uh, my um, controller, if you like. Keeps me under <laughs> control. Uh, oh, well, thank God you found <laughs> one. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it's... Uh, I noticed when the files first came out, a lot of people dismissed it in the press and said, well, there's something there, he was violent, and so on and so forth. But, um... It's, it's, not as, it's not as easy as that. It's going to take a long time to look through all those records. And it's the simple little things like, as I saw the third on Howe's um, site the other day, why, why did Thomas Cutbush punch Gilbert Cooper in the face? Was it because oh. Gilbert Cooper was a bully? And uh, Thomas Cutbush says he used to protect little boys, you know, and uh, all these little things have to be looked into. And, and I don't like this rush to do things, you know. I want Paul to uh, explain to us what what that experience was like. Um, being, I believe you and Richard Jones were the first ones to see the Broadmoor files. Um, yeah. Can, can you kind of explain to us how, like, what the process was? Because for those of us who will never be getting over there, now they're in Reading, right? That's right. They're they're held by the uh, by by the the record office over in Reading. Uh, and um, it was that they've been lodged there because a vast number of these files were seriously water damaged. So uh, they were sent to the Berkshire Record Office because uh, obviously Broadmoor is in Berkshire. Uh, and the Record Office got funding uh, from, I think it was the Wellcome Institute, to undertake um, a lot of uh, uh, repair work on these documents. And it just so happened that the Cutbush papers were uh, among the first ones that, you know, the ones that hadn't been damaged that they they released. And so, Berkshire Record Office itself seems to be just a, a, a relatively small, small place. And um, Richard and I went along, and we're allowed to uh, to go in and view the files. Um, and they were just in little little three little folders at that stage I gather that that's changed a little bit now so all the, the files are put together uh, the first file um, basically dealt with committal issues uh, the second file dealt with, uh, with with his time there and the third file was, was largely consisted of letters uh, inquiring uh, or requesting additional information most of which were of fairly recent origin so the files themselves were fascinating to look at. Uh, it's always interesting to handle the original documents instead of working from photocopies. And uh, unfortunately, looking at the documents cold and, and really not having a chance to, to fit the information into the, the overall uh, Cutbush uh, picture and I have to say that Cutbush has never particularly interested me. I've I've always um, 
rather stupidly, I suppose, taken the the McNaughton view that uh, that, that that he that he was innocent and just stabbed girls in the bottom and was not likely to be Jack the Ripper. But coming away with those files and 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 looking at them, uh, it it became. Uh, more interesting to put the information together with the Sun and, and with Lloyd's Weekly News and, and build up a, uh, a good picture, and then you start to realise just how good those Sun articles were and uh, how factual they appear to be. And, and then there are lots and lots of bits and pieces that uh, you know e- each of those sources has has a piece of the jigsaw. You put the pieces together, you start to get a far clearer picture. And it is interesting that, that I think the thing that emerges out of it all is that in 1891, at least, um, there was reason to, to, for, for people to think that he was Jack the Ripper. And threatening to cut somebody's throat with a, with, with a big knife, particularly if it's your, your aunt or your mother or whatever, uh, things like that started to come through and think, you'd think to yourself, well, this guy wasn't just going around stabbing girls in the bottom. This, this this was a potentially far more serious character. I, and, I, uh, think, Paul, that, uh, I think, Paul, uh, there's, it's interesting that in the archives themselves, in the, where they describe Thomas as going from being very violent and very destructive to dull and apathetic, seem mm. to sort of show that he has these mood swings, um, or whatever we want to call them, and he admits himself that he has often suffered from fits of uncontrollable temper. You know, mm, so that shows right. that there's going to be periods where he's going to be very violent and destructive. And then other times he's going to appear to be an imbecile, you know. But he has very violent and destructive tendencies that manifest themselves in the wholesale butchery of women over a period of months and then subside and go from his violent tendencies expressing themselves like that to... Stabbing them, him, him, stabbing women in the buttocks. I mean, I, I know well, when, when schizophrenia. Well, I, I have found similar <laughs> cases, Ali. And but, as I said, uh, Robert and myself uh, do have a vague notion that Thomas was innocent of those robbing charges. It's something we're still discussing, you know. But then that yeah, just no. leads back to the point of what do we suspect him for at all? Because uh, a lot of women in Whitechapel. How's that? Well, we don't. We don't. We don't necessarily suspect him of anything, Ali. I mean, the, the, the thing is, is that people in 1891 appear to have suspected him of being Jack the Ripper, or at least thought it possible that he could have been Jack the Ripper, uh, if what he said, and, and we're talking about, about his own admission <coughs> to some chap whose name I either never knew or can't remember or nobody ever knew, who he met one evening when he was on the run. Um, and he, say, he said at that point that he thought that other people uh, considered that he was Jack the Ripper. So there must have been a reason. Yes, he said the, the runners were after him. He said talking about a crazy person. Okay, hold on a second. Um, <laughs> what a- AP you were saying? Yeah, I was just saying what Thomas said at that time was that the runners were after him. There was a £500 reward for him, I think. I don't remember yeah, rightly. something along. But as Ali says, we are talking about a crazy person, so... Yeah. Uh, we can't clever, always... Clever one uh, too. You know, there's not yeah. many crazy people that read The Lancet and, and have dialogue with Lord Grimthorpe. From my understanding, he actually met Lord Grimthorpe on one occasion and they had a conversation. Um, I've got to firm that up yet. But, I mean, 
that does, but it, it shows that he's swinging from one mad cat episode to something quite sane and, and, and normal, you know? Well, schizophrenia some- is an indicative of lack of intelligence. I mean, there's been very famous cases of absolutely brilliant people um, losing their marbles and becoming crazy. Uh, but, so, 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 I mean, you keep trying, like, saying, well, he was very, very intelligent. Lots, lots of, you know, schizophrenics have high intelligence initially. Um how that sorts it out through the, the course and, and progress of their illness is, is, is you know, a different story. But uh, I'm not one for labeling illnesses, Ali. I, I don't like this, this business of trying to get a suspect and saying, oh, he was schizophrenic or he was this or he was that. I mean, I, I don't agree going on that road, you know. So crazy is fine. There's lots of really intelligent, crazy people in the world. So, yeah. um... So Most of one way talking or another, on this one. No. <laughs> <laughs> What'd you say? So, <laughs> said most of the know, intelligent, crazy people are talking now. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, you you, you talk about <laughs> crazy, and, and and I try it. I I look at social signals. You know, I don't, I don't think anyone's ever considered the um, the impact of the Zulu Wars on um, young impressionable people at that time. The L- LVP, where in the war, the Zulus carried out vicious mutilations on the on the dead British soldiers, well, and, and the British Empire. The British Empire. The British Empire was outraged at their soldiers being after after they were shot or stabbed, they were cut to pieces, their hearts were pulled out, and everything else. And it was only a few years later that it was realised the Zulus were actually releasing the souls from these dead soldiers by committing these mutilations. And I often think something like that would have stuck in a young man's brain, you know? And he didn't have to be crazy. crazy. He just had to be influenced by the signals, you know? So what separates the person who's influenced by the signals from the person who absorbs those signals and still manages to lead a non-murdering, slaughterous life? The the ones who listen to them and the ones who don't, Ali. What do you mean by listen to them? Who listens to voices? Crazy people. That's who listens to I you know, it's and be outraged by something, but I'm not going to go out and slaughter somebody on behalf because I am not a crazy person. I get bombarded with signals all the time, and I do yeah. listen. If I listen to them and allow those signals to influence my behavior, that means I'm crazy. The people who yeah, but, listen to them and accept them and move on with their lives without killing people, those yeah, people that's are sane. that's true today. But in the LVP, mercury poisoning or something like that. Uh, could have induced a person to imagine themselves as freeing souls by doing something like that, you know? We, we, we know mercury's poisonous now, but Thomas Cutbush used to put it all over his face, you know? And, and we, we just, the effects of mercury poisoning and hallucinations and everything else and then social signaling, we just don't know. And it's, it's um, I don't like to go into our modern world and use these terms like schizophrenia and everything else. Let's, let's better say mercury poisoning or, or something like that. I don't but think it anyone... doesn't matter whether there's an organic or a physical or a biological cause, the act is still crazy. And if the act is crazy, then one can reasonably say that a repeated series of crazy acts indicates a crazy person. Well, because people were too busy with schizophrenic in the LVP, Ali. They had to earn a living, you know. It's a luxury we can afford today. 
So you're saying schizophrenia just... is caused by boredom and not by a biochemical imbalance in the brain? You're saying schizophrenia is a result of boredom? I'm not saying anything of the sort. You just said LVP people were too busy to get... They were. All right. All right. Hey, I want to move on, actually. Schizophrenia? Let me move on before we... Uh, because this is going to be an hour and a half long. But I want to get AP's um, views on the Canonical 5. Uh, in Jack the Myth, you um, exclude Liz Stride from the, the tally of the victims of Jack the Ripper. Have, so, have, have, yeah. have, have, so, you, uh, so you believe that, that um, Jack the Ripper was responsible for the murder of four people, or or what? what I, I, uh, I, I some don't of the believe... non canonical five, would you include I, in this I, tally, or what? I don't believe Jack the Ripper killed Mary Kelly either. Uh, okay, what? Um, elaborate. Um, it's just all, it's wrong um, it just doesn't fit uh, it's uh, everything is different about it um, it's not the act of um, a madman um, I've always felt it was an abortion gone wrong or something like that I've never I've never viewed it as 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 part of the Whitechapel murders never okay um, does anyone else have any final comments or questions for AP here? Howard, are you finished? I'm good. Okay, Allie, Paul, I want to let our listeners know that um, AP and Robert Linford uh, post much of their findings on jtrforums.com on the Cutbush threads there, along with Deborah Arif. She contributes as well. As uh, AP mentioned, Debs earlier, that's who he was referring to. Um and so anyone who wants to uh, keep up to date on on the work of A.P. Wolf and Robert Limford can go to jtrforums.com and read some of their stuff. Um, so, oh, and, and while I have Paul Begg here, before we wrap it up, I do want to ask you, Paul, this is unrelated to Thomas Cutbush, but there's some been some grumblings on, on the casebook about uh, the A to Z possibly finding a publisher and it, and it being listed on Amazon now. Can you give us a quick uh, A to Z update? Yeah, people are grumbling that there's going to be an update for the A to Z. Well, actually, That's, that it's listed on, on it, on that you've, in fact, found a publisher. And I was yep, it's, it's, um, it's coming out from uh, Blake. It should be out in the late summer. Uh, we delivered the manuscript... Uh, I think it was not last Friday, the Friday before, um, and uh, there is some fine tweaking that we're doing at the moment to it, so we, ha- we basically have about two weeks to fine tweak, so if there's anything that uh, anybody uh, knows errors in the past, past, issue, uh, past edition, but that was ten years ago, it's been, I, I think it's fair to say that it's been completely rewritten. Uh, we've put um, a lot of sourcing in. We've taken out a lot of stuff that uh, that we didn't think was appropriate anymore. Um, and uh, hopefully it'll be a, a, a far better book. I think Keith and I are quite uh, quite pleased with, uh, with it in that respect. Martin is probably pleased with it as well, but he's been off to California and he's currently in New York, so he's not around uh, a lot of late to have gone through the final final draft, but yes. All right. Well, that's finally, great. it's it's there. So hopefully, great. it'll come out and please everybody. Great news. 
finally. Um, all right, AP Wolf, I want to thank you for yep. being on the show. Did, no worries. I hope you enjoyed yourself. I did. All right, <laughs> good. Yep. And, and, and Ali's, uh, Ali, Ali's best when she fades out, huh? <laughs> <laughs> good night, gentlemen. All right, all right. Thank and ladies. All right, thank you, AP. No worries. Good night. Good night. Cheers, AP. Good night. And that was Rippercast, episode 39, The Diseased and Vile Creature, Thomas Cutbush. I want to thank A.P. Wolf again for being on the show today, as well as Paul Begg, Allie Ryder, and Howard Brown. I want to apologize for some of the technical difficulties we had during this episode. I hope it all turned out okay. A.P. Wolf was broadcasting from an island in the English Channel just off the northern coast of Normandy in France. And so sometimes our internet connections can get a little dodgy when we try to attempt these international podcasts. But again, I hope it all turned out okay and you had fun listening to the show. We are a weekly podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel Murders, available at the website www.casebook.org podcasts. We are also available in the iTunes Music Store, keyword Jack the Ripper or Rippercast. If you have any questions or comments for myself or any of our participants, special guests, or co-hosts, feel free to email the show at rippernet at mac.com. I want to thank everybody for listening, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>